0: Quiet on the set. Down on the Cornway, scene one, take eleven. All right. Sound? Speeding. And action! Well there, Beatrice. Looks like the O'squillin' gang won't be bothering your ranch no longer.
1: Yeah, it looks like it, Colorado. That was some real good gunslingin'. We got shot up.
2: All right, cut, cut, cut. It's good. I'm liking the performances. But I'm not liking the words. You two are actors, and I can direct the hell out of you. You, Tex! Cowboy! Yes. Who's your favorite cowboy this side of the Mississippi?
0: Uh, Jeff Bridges in True Grit.
2: Alright, now that, but he is a toy that learned how to talk and has a light year friend named Buzz. And action!
0: Well hey there, Beatrice! Looks like the O'Squillin gang won't be bothering your ranch any longer.
2: Nice. Now you actress with those feet of yours. Now, uh You've seen that show Stomp, right? Now give me your best Stomperoonie do, but pretend you're Kate Moss
1: How does Kate Moss even
2: talk? Perfect! Cut, that's that's a good on that one, <laughs> yes. Now, alright. Final showstopper. We're in our last scene. Actor I need you to take that pistol of yours and put it up your a**.
0: Okay. This doesn't feel too good, and I don't- Action! Well there, Beatrice. Looks like the Squillin' Gang won't be bothering you and your ranch no longer.
1: Yeah, looks like it, Colorado. That was some real good gunslinging.
0: And cut Perfect. We got it! We
2: got the film! Tell me you got that, Chiefs!
0: Uh, well, you see, you never asked if the cameras were rolling, but we did have audio. Oh,
2: blothers! Well, at least we have a podcast! Ha ha
0: ha And I hope that production is able to get itself off its feet. I'm Mason Moreau, this is Son of a Ginger, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Patrick Baylor. Hello. And Beth Marcinko.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm just going to put my feet away now.
0: Talking about Tarantino, you can never be too careful.
1: You got that right.
0: The award-winning foot massage.
1: Mm, Nope, 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 nope,
0: nope. (laughs) All right.
2: And hopefully we have an award-winning podcast. We're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Another very important film that will probably get uh, lots of Oscar buzz once it's that
0: time of the year. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, my. Can we? Can we stop? <laughs> I'll, stop. I'll stop. That's <laughs> the last one. The last one.
1: Just what? hold until we talk about the feet.
2: Or then if it's like BoJack Horseman, Once Upon a Time in Holly, Foo, Holly w- Foo. Where it's actually just a cartoon retelling of the Foo Fighters story.
1: I'm sure Dave Grohl is thrilled.
2: He's already signed on for, for Netflix, I'm sure. <laughs> But you know who got signed on to this film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? We got some actors. We got Leo. We got Brad. We got... Margot! Oh, yeah! Al Pacino. Margaret Qualley, who's from The Leftovers, and
0: I love The Leftovers. And don't forget, Charlie Cruz. (laughs) Who? He's the one who was at the Playboy Mansion. He's like, he married her, and then he fluted the thing and married... This person? Do you remember that? The guy who played Steve McQueen. Yeah. Damien Lewis. Oh, was that Steve McQueen?
1: I think so. Is the the same guy who was labeled outside of the mansion?
0: I guess so. Played by Damien Lewis
2: from Billions and another more important show that I'm forgetting, Homeland. He was in Homeland.
0: I'm pretty sure his name in Homeland was... Charlie Cruz. Ah, it's all. I don't know what his actual name is. It's all Damien Lewis. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay.
1: And don't forget Robin from Stranger Things.
0: Our lovely Maya Hawk. Our lovely LinkedIn third connection friend, Maya Hawk. <laughs> a friend of the show? A, Question friend, mark? A, f- a friend of the show. She knows what it is. An acquaintance of the show? Hopefully. Yeah, so we watched this movie that was a real love letter to movies in general and you know it's kind of self-referential any movie buff should love it and if you don't love it then you're not a real movie buff and that's how things work we gatekeep them <laughs> <laughs> what'd you guys think walking out of the theater were you like i enjoyed this i don't know if i enjoyed this i don't know what i'm supposed to think where am i what is life what were you thinking
1: I wouldn't necessarily call myself a movie buff. Like, I feel like I maybe know more than the average person about movies and, you know, maybe watch them a little more seriously than a lot of people. But I don't necessarily like I I wouldn't put myself in that highfalutin category.
2: Highfalutin. <laughs> you're not a movie buff, but you're maybe like movie like... Movie you, serious. You've worked I'm, out a little bit. You I'm know, movie you, swole. You got a little bit of muscle. It's it's peeping up and you, you're you just ready to commit to more workout days. I'm movie toned right now. Yes.
1: Um. So <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. I've seen a couple other movies by Tarantino, but not recently. So I wouldn't really, you know, I can't compare them as if I had seen them yesterday, but you know, I'm relatively familiar with his some of his other work.
2: I'd say I was bewildered. Maybe that's the right word for it. I watched this in good old coming Georgia and in a theater that I went to when I was like 10. So that was just confusing to be at this theater 14 years later. I was a little confused by this movie. I was a little confused by it was like oh, that was that was a Tarantino film. This isn't like his usual Tarantino films. It was a little bit different in style. I still enjoyed the story. I guess I'm sure we'll talk about this throughout the podcast. Uh, Expectations were definitely subverted with this film and what I thought it was going to be. That's the best way to describe it in a quick nutshell before we really unwrap this nutshell.
0: Yeah, my (laughs) first few reactions to the movie were, one, he subverted the expectation just a little bit with, you know, with all the press leading up to the movie about the Manson murders being a part of it. Uh, nobody really knew where it was going, and I think he took it to a, a direction that nobody really expected. But on another level, I feel like this movie is a little more personal and sentimental to Quentin Tarantino himself than maybe his past movies are have been.
1: Well, and he loves the cowboy motif, I guess I would call it. So I think having that in there and having this guy who's really struggling to move away from... The cowboy motif or to redefine his identity as a cowboy or a, a heavy was an interesting twist for him, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: You can tell Tarantino understands where the Western genre as it was in that point in history where like they were they were switching over what was popular for a leading man to be. And they like they needed a younger, more grizzled, more hippie looking lead actor and you know, he's now falling into these roles he doesn't want to play. And that's when you get Al Pacino coming in saying, like, you, you're going to ruin your career if you keep taking roles where you get beat up. Like, you're going to be a has-been. And so that's where it, like, kicks off for Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio.
2: But so we have this hot and cold actor that, whose star is fading in this changing time culturally. You know, we literally see him and his stuntman and best bud and handyman Brad Pitt, who plays Cliff Booth you know, go through and just be like literally oh, damn hippies. And we see the culture change and we see how it kind of affects these two characters, especially while they're together and apart as Rick Dalton, you know, tries to just be a better actor in Hollywood and then later Italy. And then Cliff Booth tries to just be a good neighbor and handyman all while Sharon Tate played by Margot Robbie just kind of enjoys Hollywood, enjoys the, the niceties of Hollywood and not the underbelly we see through Rick and Cliff
0: leading into the movie, there were things that came out that said like Margot Robbie only has 12 lines in the movie and she only has like 10 full minutes of screen time. And you wonder like what what role is she really going to play? She's on the poster. I mean, not that being on a poster means that you're in the movie at all, as we learned with Stuber. But Quentin Tarantino also in an interview came out and said that. She's going to be the beating heart of this film.
1: And I think that that's kind of an apt way to phrase it because, you know, in real life, Sharon Tate was brutally murdered by the Manson family. And the fact that he uses the term beating heart is kind of gruesome, but also very interesting. And I think in a way, Tarantino was foreshadowing his own subversion of reality by using that language.
0: What did you think of the subversion? Speaking of the subversion, what did you guys think of that? Slightly comical, hyper-violent ending.
2: So, like, to really fast-forward from the setup to the end, after seeing just the, the whole movie take a toll on these characters and really learning to love Cliff and Rick instead of Brad and Leo, we see everything be fine, and then, oh, yeah, remember those Mansons that we've, like, seen sprinkled throughout the movie? Here they are the night of trying to kill Sharon Tate. But, oh, wait, there's that violent guy from that TV show that we all watched as kids. Oh, let's just kill him! That confused me, but then I liked it. I thought they were going to die, or what you mentioned earlier on, that I thought Cliff was going to be some kind of other Manson hippie, and then he was going to be involved. But then to see him not only, one, be good the entire time, but then also be the guy that saves the damn day.
1: I love historical fiction in general and like period pieces like Mad Men is one of my favorite shows of all time and I think that this was a great subversion of history like a great historical fiction piece in and of itself and I I'm a big fan of true crime and of you know listened to a few things about Charles Manson and just the Manson family and the Tate murder before and so to see that reimagined was very interesting to me.
2: I knew little about that actual story and still don't know as much as I should know about that story.
0: Well, for any listener that wants to catch up on the story of the Manson family murders, I highly suggest fellow Atlanta podcast stuff. You should know's episode on how the Manson murders happened. It's a good, probably like 30 to 40 minute summation of everything you'd need to know about those murders.
1: And if you want something maybe more detailed, maybe just longer, uh, you must remember this also. Very, very excellent.
0: So I want to talk about the dual leads in this movie and how they're set up and sort of my journey through this movie and how I attached myself to these characters going on, because I really didn't like Rick Dalton to begin with, probably for a good two thirds of this movie, up until he gets his redemption where he has the good performance.
2: Which may have been intentional from Tarantino.
0: Yeah. The way they set it up is that Rick Dalton was always the pretty face. And Cliff Booth was sort of the you know, you have that scene where he leaves Rick's house and goes stunt driving down the streets of L.A. And you sort of s- start to realize that he's been the more talented one this whole time. Or I guess that's what was communicated to me was that I was, you know, Rick Dalton was always the pretty face and Cliff Booth was always the skill to back it up in a sense. And. You know, that changed for me after I saw that scene where he keeps performing. He ends up giving that really good villainous Western performance at the end. You start to realize, yeah, he, he is a little bit more than what is sort of led on from the events of the movie prior. And then Cliff Booth comes in and has this whole save the day moment at the end. And it was good. I had kind of flip flopped between who I liked more throughout the movie and I ended up liking them both by the time this Manson family people shows up at the end. There are a couple of wonderful leads.
1: I really enjoyed Brad Pitt as this kind of weathered guy who's going through a transition in his life because the guy who, you know, he backs up for, who he stunts for, is also going through this really intense transition. But I love that he is kind of our pivot into the 70s, that he is, you know, this weathered, grizzled, tough guy, but he's also super cool. And he doesn't only adhere to the expectations of the past.
2: So to see these two have this shadow plot, it just made the film just go by so much faster because the entire time, and uh, this was my dad's criticism of the film after we got out, he really didn't know, and I would agree with him, didn't really know what the movie was about until maybe two hours into the movie. We just see these two guys just kind of play off each other back and forth and just similar things happen to them in different ways. And then that just continues to verge off different paths as the movie goes, as we learn more about their characters, with one character just becoming more confident as an actor, and then another character being more confident in his his second life as a non-actor, a non-stunt man.
1: I definitely think that that coincides with the move towards more character-driven films overall. And that maybe it, took a little too long to get there, but that it was still interesting to watch. And to me, it didn't feel like a two and a half hour film to me, but it still felt a little too long.
0: Yeah. And I feel like the story beats, like the jumping off point in the first act is pretty much Rick Dalton learning that he's a has-been, right? And that's a little subtle. That's a little bit subtle for something that's supposed to drive the plot forward, but that is what does it. And then in that, you have the Sharon Tate thing happening simultaneously.
2: Subtle, I'm going to say this in air quotes. Subtle, but literally a bite from the trailer. And then in the movie, that's it, old friend. I'm a has
0: been. Oh, right. Yeah. I'd laugh
2: at that every time and then cracked up to that in the movie.
1: I also thought it was interesting, too. Like, it is subtle, but it, like, you see how much of an effect that that has on Rick Dalton and how just that phrase really messes him up and really kind of drives him to be better eventually but that he almost needs this like kick in the ass from this little girl to get him going again
0: right
2: it, it reminds me of one of the most devastating sentences i heard when i was a camp counselor this poor little kid miles he was 6 years old he got bullied by this this, this, this real bad kid and then he just comes up to me mr patrick Taylor called me a loser. And imagine hearing that at six years old and thinking that's like the worst thing ever. Now imagine hearing this as a 40 something actor that you're a has-been. I got the same vibe a little bit.
0: Do we all have the same problems whether we're six or 46?
2: Do you think this film was a little self-referential for Tarantino himself?
0: I do. I think that, like I stated earlier, this is probably more personal than some of his other films. And I think it's because he sees Hollywood as an industry like we watch movies. He has that sort of love for the history of filmmaking. And he so he decided to marry the two in this movie, sort of. And thinking about the creative process, like I wouldn't be surprised if he was like, I want to make a, a movie about a specific age of Hollywood. How do I make it interesting? How do I make it compelling? Oh, The Manson Murders. That's totally a thought process that I could see someone having if they want to make a film that is a love letter to Hollywood in their own style, especially with a style as violent and sadistic as Tarantino's can get.
2: Which is this crazy thing because there are so many like just random like articles, like just talking about the film before and after, not even talking about the film, but just talking about the date that August 8th, 1969, when the Sharon Tate murder happened that was kind of the end of this certain cultural era and this end of this era in general. And the fact that he just shows all of this time leading up to it in the year 1969 of being at the peak of this certain kind of culture and then literally seeing at least in the moment of time where it's supposed to deflate and then uh, our boy Quentin you know takes his own personal liberties. We'll talk about that in a sec though.
1: Right. Well, I mean, like I said, I love period pieces I thought it was really interesting, too, that, you know, you really see Sharon Tate as this kind of hippie girl like free love partying at the playboy mansion like she's part of the cool kids crew all about this kind of new attitude in society that's been evolving and is now culminating kind of at this apex of 1969 and that because that's such a turning point in real history to use that event and to display sharon tate's life in this way and then subvert it I thought was very interesting. It's almost like Tarantino is continually living in this dream world where this horrific thing didn't happen to this innocent or these innocent people. It was more than just her. I mean there was the Folgers heiress and j c bring j C bring, yeah, as well as uh two others, and it's very interesting to see you know his love letter to Hollywood stay in this more blissful state where the bad guys. Get what's coming to them.
0: The blissful bubble. Right. Almost what Hollywood would have wanted to happen.
1: Yeah. I really love that he uses once upon a time in Hollywood because that just immediately invokes that this is a fairy tale, something that you would want to
2: happen, not something that actually does.
0: It's an idealistic. Yeah telling of something.
2: In Tarantino's films, that's what's fun about Like, they are stuck in this time capsule of his own perspective of film. And yeah, his own making of what he still sees film as. Like, maybe he does ignore this kind of major event that is said to have ended this era and just doing what he thinks would happen. So one of y'all mentioned that Sharon Tate is the beating heart of this film. She's the beating heart of life. The beating heart of Hollywood.
0: And they let Hollywood goes on.
2: And her heart beats. And in Tarantino's heart, her heart still is beating. Her I'd heart say. will
0: go on. Right.
2: Yeah. Another film, not from Tarantino, but that was popular with Leonardo DiCaprio though.
0: <laughs> Titanic. How many <laughs> dual VHS tapes of Titanic do you think Leonardo DiCaprio has in his house?
2: Dual VHS, the part one, part two, because it's a three-hour movie.
0: Part one ended with the boat hitting the iceberg, so you couldn't not put in that next tape.
2: Literal cliffhanger, or an ice hanger,
0: <laughs> iceberg hanger, a berg hanger. Break- an icebreaker.
2: Though this is like this big Tarantino love letter to Hollywood and he throws a lot of what he loves from other films and, you know, kind of sprinkles in what he has done in all of his films. Beth, you talked about spaghetti westerns. Mason, I'm sure you talked about hyperviolence. And we have both of those in this film, but it's not the big deal of the film. Those are just kind of like little side calling cards, if anything. But this is a very different film from Tarantino films we've seen in the past.
0: Yeah, I think of any film that Tarantino is directly involved in and shares the most similarities with Jackie Brown, the writing really drives it. Both of these sort of pay homage to the 70s and 60s in visual style.
2: Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, it has very similar Jackie vibes. I'd say this one is unique because I think with all of Tarantino's films, it's a lot of Characters passing by, and then like those characters are like super directly involved into something later. We have a little bit of passings by, but if anything, none of these characters really do meet. You know, like for example, with Tex, played by Austin Butler, like one of the head honchos for the Manson family, we see him almost interact and get in a conflict with Cliff when Cliff is leaving the ranch, but it doesn't happen. We have a lot of those ah, almost moments and a lot of like space between kind of these moments that are supposed to build up that don't get there until truly the the violent end.
1: It's a lot of suspended suspense. And you really get... I mean, if you're looking for violence in a film, Tarantino's going to give it to you nine times out of ten. I think you really... If you're looking for violence, you get that payoff at the end and give you that satisfactory resolution that you're looking for that comes from that suspended suspense.
0: I agree with you that this movie has a very unique way of building that suspense. And it's almost like deliberate how he put information into the press before this movie came out about how the Manted family would play a part so that that suspense is sort of even built before the movie even starts, right? So that's that's a pretty brilliant way of doing it. Of all the unique things that this movie does, that is the most effective, is this heightened sense of suspense. And, you know, it almost plays to its detriment because... In parts where I should have really been paying attention, I was like, you know, come on, get to the point already. You know, I was I was kind of getting bored at certain moments. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I think that he really tries to keep you looped in when Brad Pitt keeps seeing this one girl from the Manson family and keeps seeing her and you're like, oh, like, is this the time he's going to pick her up? Because you know he's going to pick her up. Yeah. That was the way that he tried to keep you engrossed because Tarantino has to know that his movies are too long. <laughs> Like just he just to
2: has me. to. But he uses that length to his benefit. And span the whole Span Ranch scene, that's the best example of it all. That entire scene though was just expectation after expectation just like getting you and like I at least didn't know what was going to happen. I thought Bruce Dern's character was going to like shoot up Cliff Booth and then I thought Dakota Fanning was going to pop back up again and something was going to happen. But no, all the hippies were gone, but then the hippies were back again like almost ready to fully attack cliff booth a, a big thanks to the whole crew i guess of the span ranch especially because they 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 did a pretty solid job of selling that suspense but of all the suspense that we got to see in this film was the alternate history that was changed with sharon tate living so before we go i want to play a little game so with this film yet again like in Inglorious glorious bastards quentin tarantino changes history sharon tate lives so i don't know if we're smelling a sequel for another Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But we might have one more Tarantino film, one more sequel? Does he change history again in this next sequel? I mean, guys, what big event in American history do you think he'll change next to make the big two and a half hour blockbuster that will be his magnum opus?
0: I think that the hit band that saw some controversy in the late 80s, Milli Vanilli, will be a front for the Church of Scientology. What? <laughs> that is that is Tarantino's 10th film. Millie, Millie Vanillogy.
2: <laughs> All right, solid. What else you got, Beth? Beth, what you got?
1: The Mothman is actually real. <laughs>
0: oh, my God. Mmm. West Virginia, that's a place that Tarantino hasn't explored yet.
2: I know. I'm there sure he go. loves it just as much as he loves Hollywood. I can see him doing, like, a Western kind of thing with that, and then the, and then a Mothman shows up. I think
0: he's going to remake the film The Elephant Man, but in claymation. <laughs> All with Crayola model magic? <laughs> yes, all with Crayola model magic.
1: I think he could make a better version of Hail Caesar, but about the making of Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor.
2: Or he could do the same thing, except it's about the making of Freaky Friday with Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis. Lots Great. of problems were, were on that Great. side.
0: I feel like there was a lot of cocaine on that set Of a Disney
2: Mark Harmon's nose looks a little dusty, in my opinion.
1: Don't you dare besmirch the name of Mark Harmon. My mother loves him.
2: Well, then how about this? We see the same thing, Hail Caesar style, except on the set of The Parent Trap, again, with Lindsay Lohan.
0: I think Tarantino will write a gritty love story about the 2007 writer's strike. And that's
2: how he fell in love?
0: With writing. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> and also how pushing daisies got torn off the air too
2: early yeah oh, I love that show.
1: his next film will be about the birth of culture Cardi B and Offset's child
2: <gasps> the birth of culture what
0: is uh, the birth of culture
1: the birth it'll just be called the birth of culture but with a K yeah. and then it will also reference none other than the Kardashians <laughs>
0: The Birth of Culture 2, Culture Rises.
1: (laughs) Culture rises against the Kardashians to take over the world.
0: The Birth of Culture 3, Culture Gets Potty Trained.
2: (laughs) And it's these beautiful home video biopics, but then... (laughs) Then Tarantino just writes whatever he wants into the life of culture, and that's how he changes history.
1: (laughs) And it's gonna make you cry like, won't you be my neighbor?
0: (laughs) In all seriousness, I would like to see Tarantino take a crack at a documentary. Ooh. I would, you know, or try some new medium.
1: You know what would be interesting is if he did, like, a documentary about the prison system in America.
0: Sure. That would be interesting.
2: But that'd be such a cool narrative, though. I would just want to watch a Quentin Tarantino prison movie. (gasps) That'd be cool. That would be cool. I
1: mean, yeah. But also exposing the prison system in America.
0: It's pretty bad. All right, get this. (laughs) Industrial Revolution. But... It is a legitimate revolution. Like, people are fighting, and it's a war. But over industry.
2: Over cottage industries?
0: Corporation wars, yeah.
2: And it's like, nothing Nothing ends up being regulated, so then what happens when these super major corporations happen?
0: I know Tarantino has, like, a very unique way of storytelling, but if, if I were to want him to adapt anything, maybe it'd be 1984. Or Ooh. something like that, where it's... Uh, you know, so culturally relevant that it, it withstands time
1: I have one more idea if he was going to do a biopic a biopic about Edgar Allan Poe
0: ooh ooh, you are right, right. on the money but, there. but what
2: part of history will be changed? he doesn't quote the raven nevermore?
0: <laughs> so uh should we play it out of here
2: gentlemen? yeah <laughs> you can see all of our alternate histories and our alternate podcasts and our real life podcasts on google play Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Buzzsprout.com, and wherever else you get your podcast. Beth, where else do we get our podcast?
1: I mean, I get my podcasts on Stitcher personally, but if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Give us five stars. We'd love you for it.
2: We love five stars. Five stars on your Ubers, Lyfts, and us. And speaking of five stars, you can give us five likes or 15 or 100 likes on our new Instagram page. That's right. We got social... We're a podcast that now has visuals. So follow us at Son of a Ginger Podcast on Instagram to get a little bit of news and stuff about when our podcasts are coming and see some behind the scenes stuff.
0: We got a lot. Be a part of the community.
1: Right. And, you know, send us the kind of memes you want to see on our Instagram.
0: Yeah, we'll post your memes for sure. <laughs> we got a lot.
2: Well, it's time for Meme to Leave and you guys too. So with that, y'all, I've been Patrick
0: Baylor.
1: I'm Beth Marcinko.
0: And I'm. Mason Hollywood Moreau. And cut. Brilliant.